Hello and welcome back to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month, we are excited to be covering orthopaedics. We will be discussing the utility of the ankle brachial index, surgical plating versus closed reduction for patients over the age of 65 with distal radius fractures, and all things pelvic binders. This month, we are lucky enough to be joined by two speakers from the Northern Rivers in the orthopaedic department. Dr. Anthony Wilson, one of the orthopaedic registrars at Lismore Base Hospital, and Dr. Herwig Drobetz, an orthopaedic trauma surgeon at Lismore Base Hospital, who has also undertaken several assignments as an orthopaedic surgeon overseas with MSF. We also have our very own emergency staff specialist, Dr. Pramod Chandru, who will be providing insight into all our discussions as usual. So before we get started, let's go around the table quickly so you know who we all are. Hi, I'm Marisa, I'm one of the emergency registrars and I'm back again for another episode. Hello, I'm Herbert Trubetz, I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Lismore. Hi, I'm Kim, I'm one of the emergency registrars here at Westmead. Hi, I'm Anthony, I'm one of the orthopedic registrars at Lismore. Hey everyone, I'm Pramod, I'm one of the ED staffies over at Westmead in the PN Hospital. And I'm Caroline and I'll be your host this month. So without further ado, I'll pass the mic over to Dr. Anthony Wilson, who will be presenting a paper entitled, Can Vascular Injury Be Appropriately Assessed with Physical Examination After Knee Dislocation? by Douglas Weinberg et al. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks, Caroline. So this article was published in uh, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, which is a journal with Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons in the US. This is in 2016. So a little bit of a background, as we all know, knee dislocations are rare, but potentially devastating injuries, if not identified promptly and managed appropriately. They cover about 0.02% of all orthopedic injuries with a ratio of four to one male to females. And they're associated with other injuries, the most concerning of which is vascular injury, but also nerve injury, which is the common perineal nerve, most commonly fractures and surrounding soft tissue injuries like patella tendon rupture. And of course, they do come in as part of a polytrauma, so they can be missed. Vascular injury is the most severe, as missing it can lead to amputation. The controversial side of this is the best diagnostic approach to identify that vascular injury. Is it performing CT angiogram, arterial Dopplers, or is perhaps clinical examination alone sufficient? So this study had the following aims. One was to identify which patient factors are predictors for vascular injury after dislocation. And secondly, which I think we'll have the most discussion, what are the diagnostic utilities of a palpable dorsalis pedis, palpable posterior tibial pulse, and the presence of an ABI less than 0.9? Regarding the methods, this was performed at a level one trauma center in the US, Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was a retrospective review. So it's level three evidence of the records of patients who received care at the center from January 2000 to December 2014. There was 141 patients identified, of which 31 were excluded due to either incomplete medical records, less than six-month follow-up, inappropriate classification, or there was one patient who died prior to undergoing a physical examination. Of the 110 available, the following information was collected. Their age, sex, 
BMI, mechanism of injury and presence of an open injury. And it was identified whether they were high or low energy mechanisms with high energy being from a motor vehicle or motorbike, crush injuries or pedestrian versus vehicle. The examination they included was the presence of the dorsalis pedis pulse, the presence of the posterior tibial pulse, and whether the ABI was 0.9 or greater. And it also included serial examination for at least 48 hours, or although it didn't describe exactly what it meant by serial examination as to how often it needed to be done. And vascular injury was identified as being positive in patients who had vascular exploration after an abnormal exam and negative for patients whose clinical follow-up at six months suggested the absence of symptoms. Regarding the characteristics of the patient, the age was centred around 37. The average injury severity score was 15. There were 65% of patients were males, 76% were high energy mechanisms, and 35% were open injuries. And there was a mean follow-up of 19 plus or minus 10 months. Going through the results, 26 patients, which is 24% of the study, were shown to have a major vascular injury. And this is consistent with previous studies, which showed anywhere from 15 to 40%. I know they're quite large variation, but in that ballpark. And the most common injury was an occlusion of the popliteal artery. The interesting result was there was an increased BMI associated with a 7.7% increase in the odds of sustaining a vascular injury. And this was deemed significant and with a p-value of less than 0.05. Also, open injuries were more likely to sustain vascular injuries. Age, sex, mechanism, and injury severity score were not associated with a vascular injury. In terms of the examination findings, no single examination finding was 100% sensitive, which is something that's important to think about. The significance of missing an injury is so severe that if you're basing things on an examination, it needs to be. Looking at the examinations individually, the ABI less than 0.9 had the highest positive likelihood ratio and specificity of a vascular injury. And the presence of a dorsalis pedis had the lowest negative likelihood ratio and highest specificity, but that was still only 98%. However, the main finding was that a combination of physical exam of those three components had 100% sensitivity and 98% specificity, commented that there were two patients who had false positives. Now, I think this is something that we can probably accept having false positives when the significance of missing an injury is quite severe. And the conclusion was that the combination of dorsalis pedis, posterior tibial pulses, and a normal ABI was 100% sensitive for ruling out vascular injury uh, up to six months after the initial injury. Looking at the strengths and limitations of this paper, in terms of the strengths, this did provide a couple of new pieces of information. So it was the first paper that was really able to show that BMI and open injuries were independent risk factors for sustaining vascular injuries. And again, it was something that showed that a, a physical exam on its own is something that can be used to rule out a vascular injury. So that's 100% sensitivity in ruling it out. Regarding the limitations, as mentioned earlier, this is level three evidence. I don't think you could really ever get a level one study to compare this sort of thing. It did have a relatively small number of patients over a recruitment period of 14 years. This was about 10 per year for a major trauma center. I'm not sure how that compares to somewhere like Westmead, how many need, need dislocation. It's definitely not something that I see that commonly. It's retrospectively collected data and the data was limited to the data set that was documented in the notes at the time of injury. And so it's something that in the future you'd be able to do some prospectively um, collected data, although definitely not randomized. A couple of other things in the study there's a lack of a gold standard comparator. So CT angiogram 
has been shown to be the gold standard for identifying vascular injury. And it doesn't make it clear how they went from having an abnormal examination to vascular exploration, whether a CT was or wasn't used. In the discussion part of the paper, it does talk about some people had CT androgens, but it's it's not clear whether that was then used afterwards to guide whether to go to theatre or not, or to rule out those false positives. And another thing that it doesn't look at, which other papers have, is it doesn't differentiate risk of vascular injury with the direction of knee dislocation. Classically, a posterior knee dislocation is thought to have the highest risk of popliteal injury. So that's something that future studies could continue to look at. And just looking at the data tables, I was a little bit confused how they came up with some of the numbers because it does look like there's probably a higher false positive rate than what they've said, which is only two people. But I do think that a false positive rate on examination is preferable to the other way around. So it is something that's acceptable to have false positives if you then have further information to guide whether you're having a vascular intervention or not. And the other thoughts I had was regarding the applicability um, into all our practices, and this is something we'll probably go into a little bit more in the discussion. But number one, in terms of the practicality of performing serial examination with ABIs, I've often seen knee dislocations reduced and put in a long leg plaster. So how do you do an ABI if that's the case? Who does the ABI? Whether that's the orthopedic registrar, emergency registrar, or the nurses there, and exactly how you do that. Um, but the other thought I had, particularly for somewhere like Lismore, which is the rural hospital with referral centres that are three, four hours away, is that I can definitely see a significant benefit in rural settings where access to CT angiography is quite limited. So having a, a normal examination is going to be very reassuring while waiting for patients to be transferred from four or five hours away to our centre. Thank you so much for that presentation of that article. I feel like you covered a lot of the main things that we think about when we're trying to practically deal with these patients in the emergency departments. So that was really good. I think before we get really deep into the discussion, I think it would be good to just go through how we do do an ABI. Well, you measure blood pressure at the ankle and you should do it with a Doppler sound. You need to know the systolic blood pressure only and you do it with a Doppler probe. You measure it at the arm first. And it's important you measure both arms and then you measure both legs, so the healthy and the unhealthy one. When you do the ankle, as far as I am aware, the tibialis posterior pulse is more important than the dorsalis pedis pulse. So you can have an absent dorsalis pedis pulse in perfectly healthy individuals, but you should always have a deep posterior pulse. That's why it's interesting with this study that the dorsalis pedis was actually the more important one in their study. And then you compare them. So it's important to do both and it's important to do serial measures. And I have no idea what serial means either because there's no study, there's no recommendation, at least in orthopedic land. But if you are thinking about serial measurements, then you're already a winner because then you are already worried about the patients. And I think that's the major issue that we overlook a lot of knee dislocations because we don't think about it could be a knee dislocation. I think that's a really, really good point. So I guess in terms of patients coming through the door in emergency, potentially even with low impact mechanisms, what kind of things in either the history or the clinical examination should make us think this patient needs an ABI? The most important question, the only important question in trauma is, is how did it happen? Right, so the majority still have high energy injuries. 
low energy injury, you then need to really drill into the detail of how did that happen. So we had one patient with a popliteal artery embolism who had a posterior knee dislocation. They were sitting in a train and had their feet up on a bench and some other passenger wanted to climb over them, slipped and fell on their extended knee, right? And they felt the pop and that was it, right? But that's a huge force directed straight anterior posterior and nobody really asked this patient how they how that worked right and she had an embolism and then had to have an amputation so we need to really drill into how did it happen we need to think about high energy and rotational forces to the knee and if there is a sufficient evidence of a high energy rotational force to the knee and that patient comes in and does not have a knee effusion but has a somewhat wobbly knee and tell you they can't walk, then I'm getting very, very nervous. Because if they don't have a knee effusion, that means their capsule is ruptured. And that means all this effusion goes into the soft tissues. If they have a somewhat wobbly knee and they do have a knee effusion, a big knee effusion, that's actually much better because it means it's all still contained and the capsule didn't rupture. It takes a huge force to rupture the capsule. So then I'm really worried. And I think there's way more knee dislocations. It's not as rare as we think because we never see it on an X-ray. The knee is a joint that doesn't want to stay out. So it's very rare to see them on an X-ray. They're usually reduced spontaneously. And the biggest thing is to think about it. We overlook a lot because we don't think, and by we, I also mean orthopedic surgeons. We don't think about it because we are too busy to ask for the mechanism and we, we, we don't appreciate especially obese people because they have these huge lever arms. So when they fall, there's this huge force acting on that knee because of their weight. That's why they are at higher risk. So a dry knee that's wobbly and they can't walk anymore, that's a knee dislocation, unless proven otherwise, but it usually is one. On a practical point, I know in this paper, it didn't really clarify what happens if we had some part of that examination they mentioned being abnormal, but would you suggest that it's reasonable to pursue a CT angiogram in any patient where we're missing the DP pulse, the PT pulse, or we have an abnormal ABI? I think that's what they suggested in this paper, if I can recall correctly, that you should have a low trigger to do the CT angio. And um, there is also a few papers that showed that you can have completely normal physical examinations and they still had a vascular injury because they didn't do serial examinations and that developed up to i don't know 24 hours later so if they have an intima lesion if they have an intima flap tear they can also become occluded right the treatment is just aspirin when you are not occluded but once it's occluded once you have an embolus then you have a problem then it needs an operation obviously the two cases that I picked up were both, uh, actually, you know, I've seen three. One was pretty obvious, but the other two were both short-stay patients. And I didn't do something as fancy as this triple exam, which I think is something that I'll take away from this paper. I just looked at the leg and it looked weird, and I sort of just, the mechanism sounded a bit suspect. 
and I didn't think the patient had been extensively imaged enough. And so I threw on an angio onto the CT as well. And so it's an interesting paper to discuss because I do think that first challenge is actually acknowledging that there might be a potential diagnosis to begin with. I don't think you can overstate how difficult that can be sometimes. I think that's important to touch on. The other point I wanted to see if anyone knew, I couldn't find out who actually did the examination in these patients to establish this sensitivity. The way I view clinical examinations is I view them in the same way as I would view something like ultrasounds where operator dependent. I think a lot of the studies that have actually gone into assessing clinical examination sensitivity and specificity have demonstrated that. The most recent one would be something like the HINCE examination, cerebellar science. There's a pretty clear delineation in what the casual physician, like an ED physician who doesn't necessarily see as much neuro-ophthalmology pathology would be compared to a neurologist. Obviously, the HINCE exam is arguably more complicated than this, but you know, an ABI is not something that we do all that often in the ED. I'd be interested to know if that sensitivity really bears out you know, when it's done by a resident versus a ED registrar versus an orthopedic registrar versus an orthopedic fellow. The other thing I think about is, you know, vascular surgeons seem like magicians when they come to palpate peripheral pulses. They just draw X's everywhere. And I'm like, I can't feel anything here. That's a great example of the differences in sensitivity of clinical examination findings between two individuals. It's worth thinking about, particularly when it's touted as being 100%. If it's going to be the only thing you rely on, you have to be very cautious about how much anchoring you put on that. If I'm given a real patient who has a mechanism that's convincing with like significant high energy impact that has, you know, all of these signs are negative, would I trust myself to say, nah, probably not CT angio and maybe that might be someone that I would do serial exams on? I don't know if, or if I would just pull the trigger and do the same thing. I don't know. I personally don't think my sensitivity would be up at 100%. So I think that's an interesting point, particularly when you raise the efficacy in rural and regional centres. I think that's important to note. I agree. It's, it's quite a difficult thing. I think for me, if it was a patient at the hospital I was at, I'd want to be assessing that myself. And then even then, as you say, do you trust yourself? I'd have a low suspicion for still progressing to a CT angiogram if there was concerning features on the history, the imaging, or if I wasn't 100% sure on the examination. And even then, you're right. It's, it's a scary thing if you miss it. So the way I would view it would be if the pretest probability, so if I had a skinny patient with a low risk mechanism, I would do this exam as part of my routine clinical assessment. And I think in that particular patient population with the prevalence of disease being low, my sensitivity would be high enough that I'd be happy to say that I don't need to see to you angel everyone. So there might be some utility there, but if it was a, a quote unquote higher risk patient for whatever reason, be it patient factors or mechanism factors. I don't know what I would do in that circumstance. Maybe I would do it and I would ask the ortho reg to do it. And if we're both in agreement, then maybe a serial monitoring sort of plan might be reasonable. If I think about it, how would I use this study pragmatically on the floor? That's probably how I would use it. What would classically happen at Westmead at a trauma centre with someone who's got an obvious knee dislocation that you reduce in resus? Would all of these patients get CT angiogram? Yeah, and I think that's probably more an acknowledgement of the fact that we don't do serial examinations well. Again, and I think that's just a reflection of how busy the hospital system is and probably just a lot to do with the bias people have about how important it is. If you're going to do serial examinations, you have to do them consistently. It has to be the same person who does it. It's very much a lost art form. I think, you know, the surgeons used to do it a lot when CT and operative interventions weren't as easy. When it comes to general surgeons, for example, doing serial examinations on abdomens, that's something that doesn't happen as often as it used to. I don't think it's something that the nursing staff has switched onto. I don't think it's something that the medical staff on the wards has switched onto. So then you worry whether you're going to miss things because, you know, you're not doing a good job of what is your 
alternate management strategy. And so I think we always advocate for CT. It's more a medical legal thing, right? So if you're in a in a in a small center and you don't have a CT scan and you and you can't send the patient away, the fact that you do serial ABIs means at least you're thinking about a potentially serious injury and that already protects you. Whether you are as good as you think you are or whether you are not as good is probably not as important, right? It's just about thinking of this injury. And we are also not good at serial examinations. I think the orthopedic official answer is when you have a normal ABI, then the patient doesn't have a problem. And that's, I think, still the official exam answer. And that's not enough. A normal ABI is not enough, right? If the patient has... It also needs to have pulses and everything else also needs to be okay. Yes, and I don't think the system caters for these kinds of admissions where we do serial examinations. I don't think that's really an accepted treatment modality sometimes. There's no standard for yeah. serial examinations. Nobody knows, is it every two hours? Is it every 12 hours? Nobody, how long? There's no standard. And so I think when, when it's hard to know whether you're doing something right, you need to approach it with caution. So I, I don't know how valid a serial ABI management plan would be, but I think the score has some diagnostic utility in those patients that are low risk. So, you know, if you think about sensitivity being directly proportional to your disease prevalence, then if you pick to do the test in those patients in whom you think the prevalence is going to be low anyway, because, and the reason you would do that is because it's so disease modifying, right? If you miss one, you know, it's potentially significant outcomes, but you don't want to CT everyone. So if you say, well, this patient has a low risk for having a knee dislocation to begin with, and I don't think they've got a vascular injury just by the nature of their mechanism and the history that I'm getting, then if I do this test in this patient and it's negative, that would be very sensitive because you, your prevalence is so low. So your idea of false negatives would be significantly lower. I think just statistically speaking, that, that would be the only place that I would see this test fitting. I think alternatively, and it doesn't necessarily directly apply to the paper, but thinking about, you know, the way ED is structured in Lismore at the moment, overnight we don't have CT and using an abnormal ABI finding as ammunition to call an on-call radiographer in or to speak to someone early and try and communicate your concerns about the patient with tangible numbers. I think that's another potential area where rather than excluding something, but using a finding might actually help just as an alternative as well. Going on all of your points about having to know the entity exists in order to look for it in the first place, there are many things in orthopedics where there are just certain potentially devastating consequences of things if you don't pick it up. Well, obviously compartment syndromes, that's the big thing. And compartment syndromes can be anywhere, can be in your hand, can be in your foot. Everybody knows about the tibia, obviously, because that's the most common one. So that's that's one thing. And the knee dislocation is definitely a big thing. I'm 100% sure we are overlooking way more than we are actually classifying as knee dislocation. So if you have a, a ligamentous injury to your knee where you have a medial collateral ligament, an ACL and a PCL ruptured, that's a knee dislocation. Because there's so much force necessary to do this. It's semantics to say whether that's a knee dislocation or not, but it classifies as a potential injury to the popliteal artery or to any other artery. That's a big thing, I think. We are, we are not good at that. We also are orthopedic surgeons. We are not good at that. We underestimate them. And I think the other one I would throw in there with compartment syndrome is things like post-production neuropraxia and things like that. There's been a couple of M&Ms where that's been an issue. People have just been given in boatloads of morphine after reduction, but no one actually goes and examines. I think those sort of things, and how do you protect yourself? You can't know all the things, Maria. This is where it's challenging, right? So you have triggers 
So, you know, when, so what you need to do and how to approach these situations is you form a hypothesis. You know, I think this patient has just a tibial fracture, mid-shaft tibial fracture. You know, most mid-shaft tibial fractures should improve with panadol, neurofen, some endone, a bit of morphine. This patient's now 30 milligrams of morphine in. Therefore, something's wrong. Either my diagnosis is wrong or I've misjudged the severity of the illness. And that should trigger you to go back and assess. That's kind of, it's a very blunt example, but it, it is how you would, it's the only real way to, to, to protect yourself from falling into bias and not missing these things. If you're thinking about it from a clinician point of view on the floor with hundreds of other priorities. Any trauma presentation with a major orthopedic injury, they're always distracting injuries. So ephemeral shafts in a young person, it's a massive mechanism. You can miss a knee dislocation. You can miss a fracture on the other side. And obviously not just orthopedic issues, but other, you know, chest, abdomen, uh, major issues that, that are missed. I'm sure you all know things like calcaneus fractures from a fall. You look for spine and it's just a matter of having, when you see these injuries like a knee dislocation, you look for other injuries and what we do at Lismore is all of these patients come in under the general surgery or the trauma team. But if they've got any orthopedic injury, we both teams perform serial tertiary surveys for the subsequent number of days. And often you do find another thing that's been missed, completely different area. But even with neck and femur fractures, it's not out of the realms of possibility. I've, I've seen dislocated shoulders that have been missed because all the focus is on the hip that's externally rotated and they're sore from it and they've got some dementia. So performing secondary and tertiary surveys on all these patients with any major injuries is important. Yeah, I fully agree, Anthony. I always make the registers do a tertiary survey, even though the surgeons do, and it greatly annoys them. But you will be surprised what you find. It's not about the severity of the injuries. It's about how annoying it is for the patients. So we had this big pelvic fracture and everybody was excited about it and they do a big operation, blah, blah, blah. And because we are so excited about it, we overlook the dislocation of the second toe. And this is the reason why the patient can't walk. And after four weeks, it's extremely difficult to, <laughs> to fix that. And the patient was annoyed to no end because he couldn't walk because of this second toe dislocation. Well, thank you, everyone. I feel like that's been a really, really good discussion on an important topic that we don't necessarily see that often. Anthony, are you happy to give us three take-home points from the discussion in the paper? Serial examination with these three components is an essential part of the management pathway. It doesn't have to be the only part of it, but I think something that should be performed for any knee dislocation that presents. Perhaps routine CT angiograms for all patients is not absolutely necessary in safely managing knee dislocations but still maintaining a low threshold for performing them is appropriate. And finally, it doesn't really come from the paper, but we have talked about it. Up to 50% of knee dislocations have reduced spontaneously by the time of presentation. So it's really important to have a high suspicion for unstable knee injuries in high energy mechanisms, but also in low velocity knee injuries, such as these obese individuals, as the consequences for missing them can be very significant. Thank you so much for that. Now it's time for our interlude of the month. This month, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Herwig Drobetz, who's one of the orthopedic trauma surgeons at Lismore Base Hospital, but is also someone who spent some time overseas as part of MSF as an orthopedic surgeon. So we're very lucky to have him with us today. I'll pass over to Dr. Herwig Drobetz. I'm lucky to be invited. And that's the part I'm really dreading now to talk about myself. I listened to a few of your podcasts and all your expert guests, they had so many clever intellectual things to say that I'm feeling completely stressed now what to say. 
But then, I mean, orthopedic surgeons are not uh, expected to be intellectual giants anyway. So I guess I'll just, I'll just talk about MSF and what brought me to Australia. So, yeah, you probably haven't noticed from my Australian accent, but I'm actually originally not from Australia, despite my impeccable accent. I came to Australia in 2004, like many other people for just one year, and then uh, uh, it became a second year and a third year, and at some stage you just stay. And my training is actually that of a trauma surgeon. So in Europe, you have a, you have a pathway where we are trained as trauma surgeons. That means we deal with everything that's bleeding from head to toe. So we have to go through neurosurgery and thoracic surgery and vascular surgery and abdominal surgery. So we can stop the bleeding wherever it comes from, but we are not really good at anything in particular. But because 70% of all trauma is orthopedic, that's why I am recognized in Australia as an orthopedic surgeon. Because that's my super specialization. We also dealt with sports injuries. So we did a lot of atroscopies and ACL reconstructions and all these things. And we did hip and knee replacements for people post-trauma. So we cover a lot of the orthopedic stuff. So that's why I'm recognized as an orthopedic surgeon. But I do exclusively trauma because that's what I learned and that's what I trained and that's what I'm interested in. And I've spent a long time in northern Queensland in Mackay. And that probably prepared me to work in an austere environment because when I came to Mackay, it was quite grim. We were two surgeons and two registrars and we did a one in two roster, I think, for one and a half years. And that was actually quite entertaining. So working with MSF, that was always a, a huge interest of mine. It's a, it's a classical cliche thing. So I saw when I was a student, I saw somebody come back from a mission with MSF and showed all these incredibly interesting photos and that's when I knew that's what I want to do and of course then you have to do your training and career and kids and everything gets in the way so it took until 2014 to actually join them and then uh, they accepted me and then I forgot about them and they forgot about me and never got back to me and then I got a bit, little bit confused and joined the Navy but then found out that it's actually probably better to go to a crisis situation with a cool t-shirt and uh, long hair rather than with a uniform and a big boat and uh, short hair. So in 2018, I then did my first mission with MSF and went to Syria. And since then, I try to go away once a year to wherever they send me. And I'm very, very, very lucky that in my hospital, I have really nice colleagues who allow me to go away two months a year on unpaid leave in one block two to three months, so I can do these things. I was always interested in humanitarian medicine because I think it's immediate, meaningful medicine you do. And I'm not saying that what we are doing in our clinic is not meaningful, but by meaningful, I mean it's it's immediate and direct and directed at the poorest of the poor people who have no other system or organization to help them and that's what humanitarian medicine is but the more i think about it the more mind-boggling it gets what are we doing why are we doing it are we giving help to the right people and so on so you can't really think about it too much because it becomes a very difficult philosophical ethical thing to deal with but then again orthopedic surgeons not intellectual giants 
So I'll just go where they sent me and I'll try to do the best as I can. And a few things I've learned is that, first of all, there's a huge need for obviously humanitarian medicine and that the need gets bigger and bigger. But specifically surgery, there's actually also a huge need. Of course, we all know that vaccinations are super important and water hygiene and all these other things are important because you can give help fast on a large scale. So that's super important. But also surgery, it's a, there's a huge disparity. So 3% of the population in the world get 75% of the more sophisticated operations. And 2 billion, 2 billion people, which is like a quarter of the world population, does have no access to basic surgical services. And that's huge, actually. And basic surgical services, these are life-threatening surgeries and obstetric interventions. They are actually not that expensive to set up. So HIV treatment, for example, is much more expensive to set up and to continue to give than basic surgical services. So there is, there is obviously, you can't do as much as fast as with vaccinations, but everything helps, right? What I also learned is that when you do these MSF trips, the most important thing is that you leave everything behind that you think you know about this country or the situation and you try to go in without any bias and without any preconceived ideas and you try to embrace everything and you have to be extremely humble that's the, the one word that comes to my mind because the guys who already work there the local surgeons the national surgeons they're usually much much better what they do with their means than what i do with my means so these guys are masters in improvisations and doing everything with nothing. And I'm not the big superstar who comes and tells them how to do it because that's never going to work. It's never important to do spectacular operations because that's fraught with problems. You don't do and go somewhere and do spectacular complicated operations and then you leave after two months and you leave all your complications behind and nobody can deal with them. So that's completely wrong. You do everything you do with a view to sustainability. So you teach other surgeons maybe spectacular operations so they can do it and they can do all the complications after you have left. That's way more important. It's way more important to teach them small operations where they can reach a lot of people than one big operation they do maybe once a year. So it's these things. It's unfortunately so often that organizations in this often with small organizations they do surgical safaris against the people right so they are disaster tourists and that's the worst you can do so if you anyone is interested the message is go with a big organization because they have the means to get you in they have the means to get you out of there if, if it gets a bit iffy and if uh, the situation becomes too unstable and they also have the logistics and they have the money to do something meaningful if you go with the small church organization, and that's by no way meant derogatory, you probably can't do much. You can go for a selfie opportunity, but that's probably or definitely the wrong reason to do these things. And if you go somewhere and you use more resources than you actually give, like water, food, accommodation, then you're doing the wrong thing. So that's very, very um, a very strong opinion of that. And there's one paper, if anybody's interested in this, there's one paper I recommend that's called The Seven Sins of Humanitarian Medicine. Anybody who 
considers doing humanitarian medicine should read this paper and then questions themselves whether what they are doing is what's necessary to be done. And I'll summarize this, and then that's the end of my spiel. Um, so number one sin is leaving a mess behind, going somewhere, doing complicated operations, and then leaving and leaving all the complications behind. And no way for the national people to deal with them or to deal with the aftercare of these complicated operations. Second is, and that's more often, way more often than we like it to see, failing to match technology with needs and abilities. So I should not go and teach arthroscopy skills in a situation where they don't have arthroscopy towers. <laughs> and that happens way more often than we think it is. So in I've been to Gaza and there's people coming from very rich countries and they all mean well and they do arthroscopy courses. But in the whole of Gaza, there's one atroscopy tower. So nobody ever does an atroscopy. So what's the point, right? It's just a bragging right I get that I have been the first one to do an atroscopy course in Gaza. But what's the point? It doesn't help anyone. The other one is that all these NGOs, the, the non-governmental organizations and the humanitarian organizations, there's often a huge competition because donations and funding depends on what they do. So they often are very jealous of their territories and they don't work with each other. And that's the worst. It's not about competition. It's about working with each other. And many humanitarian organizations also have problems to work with the local military. And sometimes that's necessary. Full stop in order to get what we want, right? We need to help people where there is no other help. Failing to have a follow-up plan is deadly sin number five, number four. So don't come, do medical treatment, show them what you can do, and then leave and never come back again. That's just cruel, right? That's like taking a kid to Disneyland for 15 minutes and then take it and drive away and never come back. So you don't do that. If you start something, you need to follow through and you need to do it recurrent and sustainable. Number five is allowing politics and training and other distracting goals to get in the way. So don't go somewhere just for the selfie opportunity and the handshake photo. Do it because it's necessary. Number six, go where we are not wanted and be bad guests. So that's also a big thing. So sometimes these NGOs, they are considered like colonial powers. They go somewhere, they do something because they can and they have no idea whether that's necessary and they work against the people. They don't talk to the local politicians, all these things. It, it happens more often than not. In Haiti, when the earthquake was in 2010, 430 humanitarian organizations rushed into the country and about 25 actually did something. All the others just did selfies and wasted resources and, and left a mess behind. And then doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Um, don't do it because you want to have a selfie opportunity, because that's unsatisfying anyway. And yes, I admit, it's a kick, it's an adventure. All these reasons I also do it for. It allows me to go to places where you normally don't go, but this is not the main reason. That's not the main reason why you should do that. The main reason should be because you want to leave something sustainable behind, so that some people benefit from what you taught other people or what you left behind. Thank you so much, Herwig. That's really enlightening. I hadn't really thought about the ways in which humanitarian work can be done wrong. So that's really interesting to think about. And we'll post the link to the 
article you mentioned in our show notes so that our listeners can access that as well. Thank you very much. That concludes the first episode of our orthopaedic series for this month. Thank you everyone for your valuable input and thank you to everyone tuning in from home. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have. You can contact us via our email westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. It was love, I never had to tell you up above, they're singing for the time.